Coming up on today's show, Dr. Leslin Lewis will join us. Our final candidate for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada interview. We'll break down last night's UCP leadership debate with Dr. Lisa Young, a professor of political scientist, and Ottawa's unjust energy transition says it's unfair to Western Canada. We'll chat with Dr. Bill Buick about that. Anyway, let's pivot and talk about the federal conservative uh, leadership race. And um, Dr. Leslin Lewis is joining us now to have that conversation. Uh, Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. We had the UCP debate provincially yesterday, and there's a lot of talk about another uh, federal debate, something that you've had some concerns over. Um, aren't debates the cornerstone of a campaign to tell us about the opposition and whether or not this thing's actually going to happen? Absolutely. They are the cornerstone of a campaign, and we've had two, actually three three debates, two official party yeah. debates, one in English and one in French. And the concerns that I'm hearing on the ground are not the concerns that the party seems to be focused on. And I want to be able to communicate with the members. Each person has a voice, has a vote. And I want to hear what's important to them. I don't want to sit in an ivory tower and dictate to members what's important to them. I believe that they should have a voice in the concerns that they believe their leader are going to bring forth. What are the, where, where's that disconnect? Like, wh- what are you hearing? I mean, we hear the typical conversations from the debates, as you say, the issues that seem to always come up. What are you hearing differently uh, when you're out on the, uh, on the hustings? Well, one big issue is the environment. How are we going to deal with the environment? Are we just going to lay down again and have policies that are going to completely decimate industries like our oil and gas sector, like our farming sector, and have these hypocritical policies whereby we're importing over 500,000 barrels of oil a day. We have the third largest accessible oil reserves on the planet, yet we leave it untapped and import foreign dictatorship oil. These are the policies that are emanating out of the net zero policy. Then we have situations with the farmers, and that affects our entire food supply chain. Mm -hmm. And we have net zero policies being imposed, 35% tariffs, on top of 30% reduction in nitrogen in soil for um, that's attached to net zero. And this type, these types of policies are not being operationalized. We are not asking the politicians, how did you get to this equation? How can you quantify this? What, um, what metrics are you using? And this is what we're seeing in the Netherlands. This is what we're seeing in Sri Lanka, that entire industries are being destroyed. And I'm not going to sit back and just allow this to happen. I'm going to fight for our farmers because I believe that they are the backbone of our food chain um, uh, supply. And we need to support them. And so I'm going to ask tough questions. And I don't see that the party is being responsive to that. I'm the only candidate that's talking about this issue that's affecting all Canadians. Well, when you talk about net zero by 2050, that's not just government. I mean, that's industry. The the major oil sands producers have their own net zero plan. I mean, industry has net zero plans. So are they out to lunch too? Well, the thing is, is people are saying net zero, but can you tell me what it means? Can you operationalize it for me? Can most of the MPs operationalize it? The, the thing is, is that the, the, the goalposts keep shifting. In the Netherlands, we saw that they said, if 
the farmers implement innovative technologies that will reduce emissions, they will leave them alone. They did that. They invested millions. Now they're saying, no, that's not enough. We need to bring, in some cases, nitrogen content down to 90%, which would mean that you are decimating that entire industry. When the farmers turn around and say to them, well, mm-hmm. um, you're destroying my industry, they say, well, if you can't afford to rent it, we'll buy it from you. We'll, we'll appropriate it. That's just not acceptable. So my concern is is that the goalposts keep shifting. We need to define exactly what net zero is and the impact that that will have on citizens and the functioning of our society. Okay. Uh, the other issues uh, that we're talking about here, I mean, basically we're talking about the, the, the future of the Conservatives and the future direction of the Conservatives. It's pretty divided, as you know, and there's been a couple of attempts to, uh, attempts to move it closer to the centre in the last two leaders. I think you would be seen as not moving it closer to the centre. What would your vision, what would your direction be for the Conservative Party if you become leader? Actually, I, I, I consider myself to be very, very reasonable in my policies. I differ from some politicians because I, I'll tell you what my personal beliefs are, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the policy sure. that I'll implement yep. that I think would be best for all. So I, I see a balanced conservative party as one that is fiscally strong, one that allows liberties, and that means that we are going to move away from some of the wokeism and cancel culture that we see that's destroying our society. People should be able to have free conversations, even if they have opposing positions. And we should be able to sit down and come to policies that are for the betterment of all Canadians. Uh, Yeah, wokeism, cancel culture, big buzzwords, I get it. Can you give me an example of where that's restricted what you're able to do? What I'm able to do or what I see in society? Or in society, sure, either way. Well, for example, I, I'm, I'm someone who's pro-life, mm-hmm. and people automatically assume that I'm against women's um, choices and women's decisions, and um, nothing could be further from the truth. I'm pro-life, and someone who's pro-choice doesn't mean that they're going to force me to have an abortion, just like I'm not going to force other women and tell them what to do. I just believe in finding policies um, that that we can find common ground on, having discussions about real-life issues, just such as sex-selective abortion. Um, Canada and North Korea are one of the only two countries in the world that still allow you to terminate a pregnancy just because it's a girl. Um, India has outlawed it. China has outlawed it. And I'd like to have conversations about it. Many pro-choice people feel that that's a reasonable conversation to have. Wokeism and cancel culture will tell you you can't have that discussion in a democracy. And I just don't accept that. Dr. Lewis, with all due respect, we're having the conversation on the air now. You're a federal MP running for the leadership of a national party. How are you being canceled for your viewpoints? Well, because I'm constantly told that that's not a conversation. That debate is over. I hear that every single day. Not from you, because you're, you're a nice reporter that is a balanced reporter but there's a lot of um cancel culture even within the media the media has been acting like an arm of the liberal party and has been promoting very very liberal ideals and attempting to silence people who don't share those viewpoints even our own prime minister said people who defer for him um, from him his view should what should we do with them like what do we do with those people do we even tolerate them? That's cancel culture. It's coming from the 
highest echelons of our society, and it's going to destroy our democracy. And that's why I'm pushing back against it. And thank you for letting me speak about it. Absolutely. I mean, we're here to have the discussion. As you say, there's no question about it. Uh, last one before we go here. It looks like, I mean, Pierre Polyev got the endorsement of Stephen Harper. Don't know how big of a deal that is, if it makes any difference. But he seems to be the uh, the front runner here. You've got a little over a month here to make up the ground. How are you feeling about where your campaign stands heading into the home stretch? Oh, I love to be underestimated. I was underestimated last time, and I won the popular vote. So... It doesn't matter how many... The, the entire establishment is supporting Pierre Polyev. But I believe in reaching the members. And so I go to the members. I speak truth to power to them. And I let them hear what my vision is. And I have confidence in the membership. Stephen Harper, I love him, respect him. He's one vote. The membership will elect the next leader. And I trust that they will elect the right leader. Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for being here this morning. I really do appreciate your time. My favorite voice on this stuff, Dr. Lisa Young, who is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary. Dr. Young, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure to chat. Happy to be here. Yeah, we've got so, I mean, the issues are, are so parallel when you take a look at what's happening federally and provincially. But uh, let, let's just start briefly with the federal discussion. And we had Dr. Leslin Lewis on just a couple of minutes ago. And she's, you know, she's talking about wokeism and, and cancel culture and uh, all, all these sorts of things. And I know that it plays well, right? And you can see it being translated down at the provincial level. But how I'm trying to wrap my head around how big of a section of the conservative voting base do you think goes for that, goes for sovereignty acts, goes for wokeism and cancel culture and fighting back? I mean, how much is that where we're going to end up with the conservatives federally and provincially when all is said and done here? You know, I think what we're seeing in both the federal race and the provincial one is that people who are party members, people who are engaged enough to go out and spend the $10 or the $15 to buy a party membership and then to show up and vote, tend to be a little more ideologically extreme than people who might vote for the party. And that's not just true of the conservatives. It's true on the left as well. Um, You know, the more engaged you are, the the clearer in some ways your your ideas are, and that pushes you out to the margins. But what we see with the Conservatives, you know, both federally and provincially, is a really interesting situation where the kinds of things that leadership candidates need to say to appeal to those party members aren't necessarily things that will appeal to the party's voting base as a whole. And so you can see the dilemmas coming once an election is called. I'm taking a look at the UCP race, and we had the leadership debate last night, and it went largely the way that I anticipated it would. It seems to me that Danielle Smith is firmly in control and driving the bus at this point. Whether she's front-runner or there's things happening behind the scenes, we don't know. But in terms of the narrative, what people are talking about and who's setting the agenda, she has absolutely dominated this campaign right from the start. Absolutely. And I think that the other candidates kind of fell into her trap in some ways and spent much of the debate responding to her agenda and, you know, really trying to 
you know, point out to party members that if Daniel Smith is elected party leader, she's not going to be electable, that her, you know, she, she doesn't necessarily use good judgment when she says things, that her Sovereignty Act is, uh, you know, dangerous and, and uh, you know, outside rule of law. And so they spent a lot of time and, and, and attention on her, but it really did make it look like it was the Danielle Smith show with everybody else responding to her. You, you mentioned the whole Sovereignty Act, and it's interesting to me because, I mean, it's been around, I'm going to say, probably a month now since she first raised it, roughly. Um, and from the moment she brought it up, her opponents have said, I mean, Brian Jean last night called it a fiscal fairy tale. Um, we've had no end of lawyers and constitutional scholars coming up and saying, this is crazy. It's not possible. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. Um, you know, you've got Jason Nixon and Travis Tate saying, this wouldn't even get through the legislature. We've known this for weeks. I mean, they're still saying the same thing about this. Clearly, that doesn't matter to the people that are supporting Daniel Smith. You can tell them all day long that this is fantasy. That, that, that's not the point. What are they missing? What's the, what's the argument? I mean, you, they, you, you've told them that it's not going to work. doesn't matter. She's locking up more support. What's the disconnect there? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, you know, for people who've got really strong feelings about the place of Alberta in, in Confederation, they don't much care uh, yeah. about, you know, hearing that, you know, it, it will cause instability and businesses will leave. They don't care that it's outside rule of law. They're willing to believe the things that Daniel Smith says about it, and, and they're willing to follow her on that. And the other thing I was really struck by last night listening to, to Danielle Smith talk is that she is such a powerful communicator and she presents her arguments with such incredible confidence and she says things that are simply factually incorrect, that are, are gross misinterpretations of the Constitution, but she says them with such assurance that I think people who are inclined to believe her We'll, we'll follow along. It, it, it reminds me in some ways of Donald Trump uh, in that respect. You know, he believed some of the really outrageous things that he says, and, and so his followers are willing to believe along with him. And I think you're right. I think a lot of it is, and there's, there's frustration, and I think there's, there's good reason for a lot of the frustration that people feel, but I know sitting here and hearing from people um, that uh, listen to this show and send me texts and give me calls, um, if, personally, like yesterday, I could not, I, I pushed back pretty hard on Marco Mendocino in an interview, and I was the savior. Everybody loved me. Absolutely loved me. I pushed back on Leslin Lewis a little bit this morning. Everybody hates me again. It, 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 it doesn't really, it, it's, it's, it seems to me that a lot of it is built totally around emotion and anger, and if you go after Justin Trudeau the way that Pierre Polyev has or the way that Danielle Smith has, that's really all that matters. They just, they want to fight back. They want somebody that will represent them because they're angry and they want to fight back. Absolutely. And, you know, it was interesting last night listening. Um, there, there were voices that were saying, look, I, I talked to, you know, voters and, and they're tired of, of the anger. They, they don't want to hear us, you know, being angry. They want us to get solutions. And it just didn't seem to land with the audience or, or even in, in the context of the debate. And I think that, you know, that goes back to the dilemma for the party that, you know, 
are Albertans fond of, of uh, Justin Trudeau? No. Are they as angry as the typical UCP member? No. And and so that's the dilemma that the party faces once it gets to an election. So if you're uh, Travis Taves, Rebecca Schultz, Brian Jean, the list goes on, and you're trying to find a foothold, trying to make some headway, to build some momentum, what would the strategy be that you would recommend? You know, it's an interesting question. And on the one hand, I think that they've allowed Smith to appear like she's in control of of the debate. On the other hand, if we think about why they would have done that, I think part of what might be going on here is some strategy about second preferences. And so you could read what happened last night as a lot of these candidates trying to convince their supporters not to give a second preference to Daniel Smith. And the logic of this would be that if Smith can't win on the first ballot, then what all of the other candidates have to do is to starve her of second preferences. And so much as it didn't make for a very satisfying debate for people who might be looking for who they're going to vote for, there might have been some strategy to this to try to make sure that Smith can't collect second preferences and and find a path to victory that way. Um, It's such a long campaign. I mean, you think about it, it seems like we've been through a campaign already and we still have two months to go. Uh, Who does that benefit, Danielle Smith or the people that are trying to catch her, do you think? Well, you know, we're we're coming up on the deadline for uh, selling memberships. And it, in I think it's the 12th of August uh, yep. that that happens. And at that point, it's a question of maybe convincing some undecided voters, uh, you know, to, to come and support you. But more than that, making sure that you get out the vote. And so then the question is, you know, how can you motivate your supporters to go out and vote? And I think that the length of this might just be really helpful to Smith's supporters because they are true believers in some ways. They're fueled by anger at the party, at the system. And so it's going to be easy to motivate them to vote. I I think that the other candidates, you know, with a long period of time in between, uh, are going to have to you know be working really hard to try to find ways to motivate their supporters to to actually fill in that ballot it's going to be very interesting to watch and we're glad you're here to help guide us through it dr young appreciate your time if you were with us well not even an hour ago well, 45 minutes ago, we were chatting with Dr. Leslin Lewis, one of the uh, candidates for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, and she was talking about her concerns over some of the policies that Ottawa has that she feels targets the energy sector and the agriculture sector. She's not alone in that. And you know what? Taking a look at it on the surface, there's definitely some concerns around some of these policies. And if you've listened to the show, you know I've said many, many times, it seems to me we often get overly ambitious and forget about the realities of the situation and they don't always match up. And then, um, you know, we blow past all of the emissions targets that we've talked about for so we we haven't hit one, not one. Um, And, uh, you know, now we see different countries going back on coal because they have all kinds of things, right? The ambition is great. It would be nice. 
but it doesn't jive with reality all the time. But now the latest uh, news from the federal government, you heard about this. Um, the environment minister talking last week about the new targets that have been brought in for not only agriculture, but the oil and gas sector. Uh, really one of the main focuses here, talking about reducing emission levels to 42% below 2019 levels by 2030. Really ramping up the pace here. Our next guest says this is just another example, as Dr. Lewis says, of Ottawa policies really targeting Western Canada unfairly. We're going to chat now with Dr. Bill Buick. Uh, Dr. Buick is the Executive Director of Fairness Alberta. Uh, Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Uh, Thank you for having me, Shay. This is a very important topic, and and the more people that understand why it's so flawed, the better. Yeah, let's get into it. First of all, I mean, it is a big change, right, in terms of the reductions, but the 42% below 2019 levels by the end of the decade, that really speeds things up and does make it much more difficult for the oil and gas sector. It does, and it's it's sort of frustrating because the goalposts seem to keep moving, and that's the worst possible thing for a sector where you're trying to attract people that want to you know, make multi-billion dollar investments over a 20 or 30 year time frame. Uh, we had a very attractive uh, place for that in the 90s, and we're now really uh, getting the, the benefits from that after all the capital's been paid off and the royalties start coming in. And with the uncertainty and the, and the goal posts keep moving, you know, either, either do a carbon tax or do a clean fuel standard or set some targets for people to reach, but we're, we're getting just hit after hit after hit, and it's clear that it's or it's not clear where this federal government currently is going to to let up on it and say okay that's good we're going to leave it there you know operate your business now and so it's it's very uncertain a place for people to invest and it's really unfair to Albertans. I think you make a great point. It has shifted so much. It's moved so much. And you know what? It has never been met. We haven't met any of these goals. The uncertainty that's been built in around this has been a mess. But uh, there were some industry insiders last week, Bill, who said, hey, this is what we want. This is some certainly, at least we know the, the field we're playing on. Do you not think that maybe that's part of what they're trying to do here, that maybe it does build in some of the certainty you're talking about? Well, yes and no. Uh, I guess, uh, have they ever said this is the last one we promise? I don't think so. Uh, and and this target is in a very big target, very hard to reach, very expensive to get to, and in a very short time. The, the rules for this aren't going to come out until next year. So companies basically have uh, seven years to for- cut their emissions 42%. Yeah. Uh, you know, if everything goes great on carbon capture, that really helps. But it's just a hyper-aggressive target. And, and as I pointed out in my column, one that no one else is being expected to reach. Uh, so the, the, it's certainly not the case that the transportation sector needs to hit, reach that target. It's not the case that uh, the auto sector has to reach that target or the uh, in heavy industries in Quebec certainly don't have to reach that target. And so it starts to feel like, if, you know, if, if the oil sands and the big energy deposits were somewhere uh, in between Ontario and Quebec, uh, they would not be the ones expected to carry all the weight for this uh, federal government's climate ambitions. What it might, I mean, industry has a pretty good time. I mean, they're 39%, right? So, I mean, they're, they're looking at a fairly sizable target, 32% for transportation. So it's not that far off. I mean, you're right. Absolutely, oil and gas at 42% is larger. Electricity is 88%, though. So is it fair to say it targets only one sector? 
Uh, it, it targets this sector much higher than the others, and and it's also a, a sector that the the federal government can can kind of enforce much more than say transportation, sure. yeah. because you know transportation's everywhere. Uh, there's cars, there's buses, there's trains, like airplanes. Are they really? Do we really think they're going to be able to reach that goal of transportation? And then who would they penalize if they didn't? Whereas the energy sector is is in a sort of certain place and it has a special relationship with the government and they can actually turn up the the screws on it and make sure it alone reaches its goals this time. Now we know industry has, uh, or many of the players in industry have their own net zero plans by 2050, so it seems like between 2020 and 2050, sort of the start and the end we can agree on, it's what happens in the middle territory where we're having this argument. now, the- exactly. And, and I, you know, it's fine for a company to set its own corporate goal for that. And, and they can sell that to shareholders and shareholders can support it. And people can buy stocks if that's the way they want to go. But it's just this heavy handed mm-hmm. government intervention that that, you know, keep in mind that our energy producers are competing against companies that operating countries that have no carbon goals. Uh, you know, our biggest competitors are in the States where they've been talking lately about starting to do this, but there's no carbon tax in Texas. There's no carbon tax in, in North Dakota. Never mind something as aggressive as a 42% reduction by 2030. So, yes, uh, the, corporate, the corporate responsibility is a real thing, and they are pursuing that on their own, uh, even at the expense of some of the competitive advantages. But when the government comes in and, and we have bureaucrats from Ottawa telling the sector what it needs to do, uh, that just detached, it's detached entirely from the reality of them competing against businesses in places like the States and places like Russia and, uh, and the Middle East, where nobody cares about the environment. Sorry to be a bit little. No, you're, about you're it, absolutely it, right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, we're, 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 it's not a level playing field for sure. Uh, I'm no. wondering. We've like we've said we, uh, these targets have been said before have never been met. Um, we were big fans in this country at the, in Ottawa of making these grand proclamations that never come to pass. Uh, indeed, with this one, when they outlined the goal within a day or two, the environment minister is back in front of the camera saying, "Wow." We can move it by a couple of years if we have to. I mean, how the consultation period is now underway. How hard and fast do you think these rules will be? And do you think they'll even be enforced? Well, again, that's part of the problem. It is. Uh, in, it, 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 it's, it's almost as bad, though, for the investment to be saber-rattling about these things, even if you are admitting you might not ever deliver them. They don't know that, and so it's hard for anybody to to plan on making investments to help Alberta produce more uh, energy. And when you look at the world, the problem with all of this is that it's almost like it's a, a 2020 campaign and it doesn't realize what's happened in the last year. Yeah, uh, The world is gripped by energy insecurity and Europe being at the mercy of Vladimir Putin because they can't find other sources for their basic energy. Uh, there's about to be a major food crisis in the world when Ukraine's production goes offline and people are going to be starving so you've got and europe in the hands of russia just to heat their homes and you've got people in other places that are going to be starving these are the things gripping the world right now and our government is just laser focused obsessed on climate ambitions now those climate ambitions uh whatever their merits when you pursue them aggressively you you are producing less food and less energy 
and you are fueling inflation around the world because those are the two big drivers of inflation. So it just seems completely out of touch with where the world is at right now. And Albertans are going to be paying a heavy cost, but it, it also impoverishes Canada. And then it also doesn't actually help the world. So that's the campaign we're trying to, to get across to people is that who are we actually helping here? And are we actually making the world better? Even if we did sacrifice all of these uh, potential uh, sales of energy resources and food. And I guess that's the question, Bill. I mean, I don't think anybody's advocating for, let's just throw all climate change policy out the window and damn the torpedoes. But I think you're right. We're in a situation where there's a couple of major crises that are taking place around the globe. And we have to be able to be flexible and considerate of the fact that there are some needs that need to be met, no matter what we would like the world to look like. These are the realities that we face. Yeah, and and I think uh, it's 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 fine to to for people to think that the climate issue is the most pressing one that we have to keep our eye on, mm-hmm. but we can't. You, you, nobody can really argue that. But it doesn't matter if it means we're giving all these sales to Vladimir Putin and extending his power over Europe. That that nobody can just dismiss that as a very serious consideration right yeah, now. Very true. And you can't say. You know, I don't care if it means uh, millions of people starving over the next five years. As long as we're using less nitrogen in our fertilizer, we're doing our part to meet climate goals. Well, if the cost is, you know, people starving around the world, uh, then no, I don't think that is a fair calculation. We, we need to have a bigger picture. I mean, even if you look at ESG metrics, the environmental social governance metrics, uh, you'd think that the only thing that matters is the emissions based on how this government operates. But I like to think that Canada has a lot more going for it than just lowering emissions, which it is doing. It's also the place where I think most countries would rather send hundreds of billions of dollars for energy needs as opposed to sending them to Vladimir Putin and Middle East dictators. So it just it needs to be a bigger picture look at this and not only focused on climate emissions. Bill, we agree. <laughs> There's not much to debate. I agree with much of you, what you're saying, and I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, sir. Thanks, and we're trying to share the word in Ontario and BC and get kind of like-minded Canadians to, to be more aware of these things. So if people can go to fairnessalberta.ca and uh, share the word and give us some support if you can, we'd really appreciate it. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.